All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. And at this point in the story, Jesus has just finished his second large teaching block as Matthew has arranged his gospel. So Matthew chapter 11, verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And this is the general formula Matthew uses to signal that he's wrapped up a teaching block and then he's moving back into the narrative, back into snapshots from the ministry of the life of Jesus. And so here in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 and following, we leave that second teaching block behind and we begin another two chapters of narrative or stories from the life of Jesus. And one of the key themes of that teaching block in chapter 10 was opposition to the message of the kingdom. And the apostles are going to experience in their own life. And by the end of chapter 10, disciples in general are going to experience certain rejection and opposition as well. Jesus says he didn't come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. And so that theme now begins to play itself out in some of these snapshots here in chapters 11 and 12. It's similar to what we saw in chapters 8 and 9. The first teaching block, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, ends by emphasizing that Jesus was teaching with authority. And then chapters 8 and 9 show pictures of Jesus' authority. Well, here, chapter 10, that teaching block emphasizes opposition to the message and the need for endurance. And the snapshots in chapters 11 and 12 are going to highlight various reactions to the ministry of Jesus, including growing opposition. The first snapshot, the one we're going to look at in this recording, involves John the Baptist, who at the time of this little snapshot is currently in prison. And the key question that this picture is going to address really is this. Is the kingdom of God, is the kingdom of heaven really coming, Jesus? Is this really the culmination of the promises of the prophets? Because it doesn't sort of feel like it. For John... And even for others watching with all that's going on. And so this snapshot revolves around answering that question and helping reassure John, the crowds, and us that indeed the kingdom really is coming and the ancient promises really are being fulfilled. So we pick up in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, and it says this. Now, while in prison, John heard about the works of Christ and he sent were by his disciples and said to him. So just to remind us where we're at, uh, we last saw John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, when he was taken into custody. So here he's still in custody. He's in prison. He hears about the works of Christ, or maybe even better, the works of the Messiah. That's the force of what's literally said. The word Christ in Greek is just a translation of the Hebrew Messiah. And so he hears about the works of the Messiah. He hears about the works that Jesus is doing, in other words. And it just raises questions in his mind. In view of his circumstances, in view of all he's hearing, he's just, he's just not sure if really everything that is supposed to be happening is happening. And so he sent word by means of his disciples and asked Jesus, are you the coming one or are we to look for someone else? Now, we saw at Jesus' baptism in chapter 3 that John believes that Jesus is the Messiah. He has a, He's confident of it there at that moment. But now John has been sitting in prison for a good length of time. And Jesus 
he's doing some of the things maybe that the Messiah is supposed to do, but he's not doing the really important things, at least from their vantage point, that the Messiah was supposed to do. Miracles, yes, and maybe the Messiah would do that, but that wasn't really at the heart of expectations for the Messiah in the first century among the Jews. There, there wasn't actually a single view of what they expected the Messiah to be like and do, but by far the most common uh, kind of unifying element of the coming Messiah was that he was going to be a king and he would sit on David's throne and he would restore Israel and deliver them from their occupiers and their oppressors. And Jesus hasn't done that. And, and he wasn't even operating in the halls of power. He was operating in the backwaters of Galilee. I mean, really, come on. He's not seeming very kingly. And personally, John was still experiencing the very kind of oppression and the very kind of persecution that a Messiah was supposed to put an end to. And so John just wants to make sure, are you really the one? And that's what drives John to send his disciples to ask this question. So how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responds by drawing attention to his works of power, and he does so in a way that alludes to some key messianic text from the book of Isaiah. And that helps. Look what he says. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you see and hear. Those who are blind receive sight. Those who are limp or lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. Those who are deaf hear. The dead are raised and the poor have the gospel preached to them. These words describe what Jesus has been doing. These great works of power that we saw in chapters 8 and 9. They describe Jesus' authority and his power. And they also allude to two passages from Isaiah. One, Isaiah 35 verses 4 through 6. That passage describes what's going to happen when God comes to save his people. That's fascinating. Jesus alludes to saying, no, look, in the day when God actually comes to, to deliver his people, these are the kinds of things that are going to happen, and they're happening. And then the other passage is Isaiah 61.1, which is about preaching the gospel, preaching the good news to the poor. It's actually a passage or part of a passage that Jesus applies to himself at the very beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4. And so the point is, Jesus roots his understanding of his ministry in Scripture, and he points John to the text, to those passages of Scripture, away from maybe even popular understandings, and says, no, you got to understand, look at the text and what it actually says. So you, you look at that, and then you can grasp what kind of Messiah he really is and what he's going to do. He's the servant that is prophesied in the book of Isaiah. And in view of the Isaiah 35 text, right, the one where it talks about what God's going to do when he comes to say, could it just be that maybe this Jesus is, is God himself coming to bring the long-awaited restoration? That's sort of the force of Jesus' words. And then Jesus says in verse 6, and blessed is any person who does not take offense at me. And that phrase, take offense, is actually stronger than just to be embarrassed by or be offended at. It's really to stumble over, to trip over and fall down to their own demise, to be ensnared by him. In this context, it means to trip over and turn away from Jesus because he didn't fit your preconceived uh, mold of what the Messiah was supposed to be like. Don't do that. 
Don't trip over Jesus just because he's not the kind of Messiah you thought you should get based on what everyone else told you. So Jesus sends John's disciples back to John with those words. And then he takes the opportunity to speak to the crowds around him about John himself and to make sure they know who John is and what that means for who Jesus is. And so verse 7 says, As these disciples of John were going away, Jesus began speaking to the crowds about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Remember, John, when he was doing his ministry, was out in the wilderness. He was out in the desert areas, baptizing people along the Jordan River. So Jesus is recalling that moment and how people flocked to John uh, when he was uh, at the heyday of his ministry. So what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. Now, what is Jesus getting at by these two images related to this question about going out to see John? Well, a reed in the wind is pictures a reed growing up by the river that's easily swayed by the wind. And thus, it pictures somebody easily shaken and undependable. So, did you go out to see somebody easily shaken and undependable? Well, no. Even though John's disciples just came and asked this, and it speaks of John maybe just wondering and needing some reassurance, John wasn't the kind of person who was just blown here and there. He knew his mission. He knew his vocation. He actually knew who Jesus was. He's just wrestling a little bit with it. So you didn't go out to see a reed shaken by the wind. Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? What does that get at? Well, soft clothing refers to somebody who loved to dress up and who catered to the whims of the powerful. They spent their time in king's palaces, and they were those who catered to the king and catered to the rich and the powerful. Did you go out to the to the wilderness to see someone like that? Not at all. That's not who you uh, went out to see. What did you go out to see? Verse 9, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And so you went out into the wilderness to see a prophet. That's who you thought John was. That's who he was. And he's not just any prophet. He's the prophet about whom uh, it was said that he's going to be the messenger ahead of the coming day of the Lord from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. That's the passage that Jesus quotes there in verse 10. So John is not just any prophet. He's the forerunner to the Lord himself. That's who you went out to see. And that, again, speaks not only of John's role, but it says something about how Jesus understood himself and what he wants the people to think about himself. He is the very Lord coming as the fulfillment of the promises. Uh, Verse 11 goes on and says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Like he, He is the culmination of all the prophets. He is the very forerunner that was promised in Malachi chapter 3. And thus, he is... He is an incredibly great man in God's scheme of redemption. And yet, Jesus goes on to say in verse 11, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, greater than he. So John, as the forerunner, is the greatest prophet of all. um, And yet, in a surprising twist, the very least person in God's kingdom is uh, greater than John. And he's greater, not because he has greatness in himself, he's greater because he's experiencing the fullness and the fulfillment of everything that God is promising to do way back in Isaiah, way back in Malachi, now coming to its culmination through John in Jesus. 
And thus, uh, no one who came before, not even John himself, can compare with those who now have the privilege of living in the age of salvation, in the age of the Spirit, in the age of the Messiah, when God's promises are coming to fullness. And so even the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. And then Jesus makes a statement in verse 12 that is a little challenging to understand. Scholars have sort of wrestled with it. Here's the way it's translated here. It says, and from the days of John the Baptist, in other words, from the very moment that John started his ministry until now, the kingdom of heaven has been treated violently and violent men take it by force. The challenge is the word translated treated violently and violent men, particularly treated violently, could be a positive phrase. It doesn't have to mean violence. It could just refer to you know, advancing powerfully or advancing forcefully. So you could translate it from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been uh, advancing forcefully or advancing powerfully and violent men take it by force. The struggle is that particular word translated violent men almost always, if not always, refers to violent men. One is the verb, one is the noun. And so it seems like when you put those two words side by side, they really need to be used sort of in a consistent manner. So I think it's best to see both of them negatively here. Not that um, the kingdom of God is advancing forcefully and yet there's violent opposition to it. That's possible. And some have taken it that way. But it's probably better, as translated here in this version, to take them both negatively. The kingdom of heaven is being facing attacks, violent attacks and forceful attacks from people who don't get it or are opposed to it, uh, and violent men take it by force. That's the idea. Um, the way one scholar puts it, he says, despite the many blessings of the arriving kingdom, despite the fact that those who are least in it are even greater than John the Baptist himself. Despite the many blessings of the arriving kingdom, John has been arrested by Herod. And the Jewish teachers are increasingly opposing Jesus. And people are growing more and more discontent, more and more impatient with Jesus' refusal to promote revolution. And so there is sort of this hostility and this opposition. And that's the idea, it seems, with what he's saying in verse 12. Um, that there's violent opposition to Jesus. There's this desire for violent revolution to try to bring in the kingdom. That was very much a Jewish mindset. And that's causing some of the problems that John has experienced and Jesus is experiencing himself. Jesus goes on in verse 13 and says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. He's the culmination of that era, the culmination of that stage in salvation history. And so Jesus says in verse 14, And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is the Elijah who was to come. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, stop and think about what I'm saying. That We've all been looking for the Elijah who is to come, right? We had the empty table at the Passover celebration, um, and we would go open the door hoping that Elijah would come that particular year. The Jews have been looking for Elijah to come for uh, decade after decade. And Jesus says, John the Baptist is him. He is the Elijah who was to come. The way uh, it's said in Luke chapter 1 verse 17 is, is that John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And this is all based on a Jewish expectation arising from Malachi again. Malachi this time, Malachi 4, 5 through 6. 
And so this Jewish hope that before the day of the Lord, before the Messiah came, um, another Elijah would arrive. Well, John was that second Elijah, according to Jesus. Well, Jesus continues reflecting on John and himself and the reaction of the crowds and the people. And he now goes on to show how fickle the people are, like, like their reaction to John, their reaction to Jesus. It just shows how fickle people are. And so he says this in verse 16, using a word picture, he says, what shall I compare this generation to? It's like children who are sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children and say, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a song of mourning, a dirge for you, and you didn't mourn. And that word picture that Jesus is using here focuses on the fickleness of children who just want everything their way. They're, they're inconsolable, right? Like nothing's going to make them happy. We, we tried to play happy songs to see if you wanted to dance. You didn't want to do that. So we played a sad song so that you could, you know, mourn to. You didn't want to do that. What do you want? Nothing's going to make you happy. That's the, that's the idea of the image in verses 16 and 17. Then in verse 18, Jesus applies it to John and to Jesus. Look what he says. He says, for John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man, i.e. Jesus, came eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a heavy drinker, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Again, what do you want? Like, you get the picture, right? Uh, John is serious and austere. And you say, he has a demon. Jesus is laughing and partying, and you say, he's a party animal, and he's partying with all the wrong people, and that's not good either. You're just like pouting, whiny, complaining kids that nothing will make you happy. But Jesus ends his words about himself and John the Baptist by saying, and yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. The idea of being vindicated is proved right. Uh, wisdom's children are those who listen to her and they do what she says. And in this case, um, what Jesus is getting at is those who respond properly to John the Baptist and those who respond properly to Jesus, they actually show who's right and who's wise. Now, as we wrap up this section, uh, let's just reflect briefly on really kind of the, the whole point in the narrative flow of Matthew. Uh, this particular snapshot, as I said at the outset, is wrestling with the question, is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, really coming, Jesus? Is what I'm seeing and hearing in you, Jesus, is this really the culmination of the promises of the prophets? Because it sure doesn't look like it or feel like it. That's really the force what lies behind John's question and his need for reassurance. And it really is at the heart of what Jesus says, both about his ministry and about John the Baptist. Like, look at all the opposition. L look at uh, what's going on and people's mixed reaction to Jesus. It, even though you're doing some works of power, Jesus, it sure doesn't seem like you're really, like, capturing people, people's imagination as the Messiah, and you're not doing really the key messianic things by getting rid of our oppressors and our opponents. But Jesus reassures John and the crowd and us that indeed the promises of the prophets are coming true. Like Jesus really is bringing in the kingdom. And the fickle response of people, or even the hostile responses of society, they don't negate that. 
They don't negate the fact that what's happening in Jesus is the culmination of years of praying and longing and hoping. So all of this reassures us really to trust in Jesus the King. To trust in him as king, regardless of what it looks like right now, or regardless of what it feels like right now. Like, even now, the kingdom of God is at work in the world, sort of behind the scenes, in subtle sorts of ways, not always visible, not always looking powerful. Even now, there's fickle responses and inconsistent responses and hostile responses to Jesus' kingship. And yet, this text tells us that indeed, in and through Jesus, God's promises are coming true, and all things are beginning to be made new. All right, thanks for tuning in to this session on the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. The listener's commentary is able to be given away for free because of the generous support of dozens of people just like you. So thanks a ton to those of you who make this ministry possible. If you have been blessed or impacted in some way by the listener's commentary, would you prayerfully consider uh, setting up a one-time or a recurring monthly donation? All monthly donors, whether through the study hub or through uh, the give button on the website, all monthly donors get access to some bonus material inside the study hub, some online courses uh, and pictures and maps and materials that I'm constantly kind of finding and adding to to the study hub. You can set up your donation by going to listenerscommentary.com, clicking the give button. You can set up a one-time or recurring monthly donation there, or you can sign up for the study hub and set up a monthly donation right there as well. Thanks a ton for your support.